and welcome to Pedagodzilla, the pedagogic podcast with the pop culture core. This week we are answering the question, how can applying UDL principles make you a better dungeon master? To answer that question, hello, I am your host, I'm Mike. Hello, I'm a learning designer at the Open University. I am imposter syndrome incarnate. I am jet lag, made flesh, and also man with a bag of microphones. And joining me as ever, we have my very capable co-host, Capable, really? It took me 10 minutes to get work out which microphone was was the one that I got plugged in. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was more than 10 minutes. <laughs> it was more than 10 minutes. I'm Mark Chards. I'm, I'm a guy with too many microphones and can't work out what's going on. And also I happen to have a PhD in education. And we are joined by a very special guest today. You may remember him from a recording earlier in the year at Playful Learning, where he was keynotering because he's fancy. And we have the winner of the Most Influential Disabled Person in the UK within the Category of Education Award. It's... Dr. Elliot Spaeth, and that may be the first time I've ever been called fancy in my life because I'm really just a scruffy little puppy. (laughs) But also, I specialize in helping people create inclusive learning environments with a particular focus on disability and neurodiversity. And that can include lecturing and consulting and just general chat, really. I really like that um, when I asked you earlier, like, you know, catch your tagline. You're like, hmm, my scruffy little puppy. Love it. Let's just jump straight into the first part of the show where we break down our question, how can applying UDL principles make you a better dungeon master? Part one, the question. Okay, so uh, two components to our question, UDL and dungeon master. Uh, I guess by dungeon master, we're sort of talking about tabletop RGBs, RPGs, and Dungeons and Dragons specifically. And it feels like the fun thing to do would be to talk about Dungeons and Dragons, otherwise known as D&D, first. So, folks, what is Dungeons and Dragons? I can't help out. I've never actually played Dungeons and Dragons. I think most of what I know comes from watching... I mean, I've seen people play it and do it in movies, and that's about it, really. The kids do, but I haven't really got into that yet. This is going to be really interesting, because I also have not played Dungeons and Dragons. Wait, what? You've not played D&D? No, I think it sounds boring. (laughs) (laughs) How, How the hell did we arrive at this question? Because role play and decision making and assumptions are all very interesting and relevant parts of Dungeons and Dragons. But the actual process of sitting at a table for many hours waiting for other people to take ages to decide what to do sounds like torture to me. <laughs> okay, so shall I, uh, shall I pick this up then for what Dungeons and Dragons is? Okay, so Dungeons and Dragons is a tabletop RPG. So it's uh, something you play with your pals around a table or in a basement if you're that way inclined. Rolling various sets of dice, uh, inhabiting role-playing characters on an adventure, usually um, facilitated um, and curated by a dungeon master. You might, in a traditional setting, it's kind of set in a fantasy world, you might be an elf, uh, a barbarian, a, um, an orc. It can be pretty much anything you want. Um, Dungeons and Dragons is kind of like the most um, ubiquitous or kind of like the classic one that uh, all the movies and TV always go towards. But there's a million trillion other TTRPG systems out there. For example, things like uh, Quest, which is fabulous, um, Pathfinder, those kinds of things. It's wonderful. The kind of the unifying thing with all of them is that you'll often kind of you'll have a character who you inhabit. You are playing, communicating, acting as that person, and there'll be some sort of like you know mechanism in the background which enables you to interact with the world uh, through chance or kind of your own sort of deliberate decisions. But yeah, so D and D has in the last I'd say ten years had a massive revival. It's, um, and I think actually kind of uh, during the pandemic as well, a lot of people found it a really good outlet 
particularly online D&D groups to meet and just kind of you know socialize and that's always think been kind of one of the big elements of it is uh, socializing but also giving people an opportunity to step outside of themselves for a bit and you know role play it being a being a, a rogue flitting around in the dark doing steely things stabbing a goblin in the back that kind of stuff so yeah that's um, that's D&D does anybody have anything they want to add on D&D one of the things that that sort of I was looking at which I kind of puts me off a bit is the whole Ran, the, the the dice rolling to generate numbers and then depending on what numbers you get then there's a particular you know sort of response that happens i mean i kind of like the whole role play thing but i like something else to take all that away from me the whole maths thing so i kind of this is why i tend to play a lot of role play games on consoles but not play Dungeons and Dragons with other people. So I guess even if you're not familiar with Dungeons and Dragons itself in its purest form, you're still going to be familiar with the elements of it that crept into the rest of culture and gaming and literature and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I think if you've played a video game, yeah. It's a bit wider than than strict D&D, I guess, maybe. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's, it's a total like cultural thing because if you've played a video game, Odds are you have played, you know, you've played a game with RPG elements. Heck, if you've played a football game, you have played a game with RPG elements. And a lot of those in game mechanics terms are influenced by the old tabletop RPGs. Um, Every, almost every police procedural ever made, um, at least in the last sort of 10, 20 years, plus um, things like Buffy and stuff have done, um, like Dungeons and Dragons special. It's like, it's it's on the checkbox of special episodes you do when you're like an American long running uh, show. You have like a, a D&D episode. The South Park one is absolutely brilliant. Oh, it's so good. And they actually shot that as um, as a machinima, didn't they? So they actually had the the characters moving around in a Dungeons & Dragons world and then recorded it off the screen rather than animate it in a regular way. Oh, seriously? Even more authentic. Yeah, so it's really good. I think what's interesting from what you're saying is essentially anything that is a scenario has a Dungeons and Dragons relation in that in tabletop RPGs, Dungeons and Dragons, for example, we're saying, what would you do in this situation? What would you do in this scenario, given this information? And that might be information about your own skill sets and about the environment. But what I think is particularly interesting about it is that dice rolling, for example, really makes it clear what the level of chance is that's involved to a certain perspective. But what isn't as obvious is that there's a much higher level of, I suppose, chance in it, which is entirely based on the benevolence or lack thereof of the dungeon master or the game master. And I think that's going to be something really interesting to draw on, which is that idea that you don't get to control your environment. This person does. And that is so often the case in the world. And the repercussions of doing various things and making various choices in the real world, if those don't align with what the people in power think you should be doing, can be too scary to even feel possible to try. And I think that's why things like this can be so interesting for exploring it and why it's particularly relevant to the pandemic, because the pandemic made lots of people's default options for doing things, whether that's learning and teaching, communication, living life in general, not available anymore. So they had to make another choice. And so 
often the choices that are made as ways that things are just done here are things that kind of only work for one set of people and everyone else just has to sort of do their best to to thrive. But what the pandemic made happen, and I'm not saying the pandemic was a positive thing, but I think one of the byproducts was people having to make different choices and people realizing that there isn't just one way of doing things, Mm. which I think has been quite galling for a lot of us who have known that the way that everyone else wants us to do something doesn't work for us and haven't been ignored for a long time. But I think that's what's particularly interesting here. And Mark, you even talked about it in relation to the environment. Like you don't like the environment of a kind of face-to-face tabletop RPG. You cope better and thrive better in an environment where some of that is done automatically, where that's done online. So when we're talking about this in relation to learning, I think the really important thing to remember is that people that are marginalized or don't really align with society's ideas of normal often don't thrive in the environments that are laid out or mandated. And so let's think about what the impact of not being able to control our environment is when the choices that other people make for you usually don't suit you. Absolutely. The the, uh, the pandemic for two years, I think we had a society that was, was basically created for, designed around introverts. So it's like, you know, you stay at home and you work <laughs> online and you don't have to go out and socialize. You well, you can't, you're not allowed to, you're forced not to. Okay, I understand people have mental health issues around about not being able to socialize if they are extroverts. But what they seem to forget then is that when we go back after lockdown and we're all not after the pandemic, the pandemic's still going, but after lockdown, and we're all <laughs> then back in the society that has been created by and for extroverts. The, all the people that were thriving during those two years when they were when the society was designed around them are now going through all of those mental health issues the 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 extroverts just go well you need to deal with it because that's the way life is and in a way that they weren't no they weren't they were resisting the message or oh, you have to deal with it because that's the way life is when we were in lockdown and it's like well obviously it just really highlights foregrounds the double standards that extroverts have <laughs> i don't like uh, it's not that i don't like extroverts but they do seem to think that they're right and everybody else is wrong and it's like well how dare you that's not how everybody is i think that that idea of the people that are considered the more powerful group in society being allowed to decide how things are and then passing that off as that's the way life is is a really key thing here Because what they're doing is they're externalizing their own preferences as some sort of universally appropriate way of things being. And once I started seeing that, I couldn't unsee it. And so now everyone says, oh, well, it is how it is, or that's the way life is, or that's just how things are done here. I think, well, why? Not because I'm saying I won't do it, but because there's a big difference between if I communicated in a way that you found really difficult. There's a big difference between you saying like, oh, I just really struggled to understand what you mean there. Would you mind like trying again or saying it this way? I'd be like, of course. Yeah. Sorry. I hadn't thought about that impact. Whereas if you said, wow, Elliot, that's not really how people are meant to behave or like, that's not really the way to communicate. I'd be like, well, you've said that I've done something inherently wrong. And I, I don't know what to do with that apart from feel shame. So I think unpicking that idea of that's, that's the way things are is absolutely vital. And that's why the role of the dungeon master is so interesting because they get to decide how life is. Mm. They are the power. Well, I think as well, it 
it brings up something which I would like to return to later, which is agency. Like good dungeon masters create opportunities for agency with their players. And what we're talking about here, I think, is agency to, you know, to in- engage and interact with the world in a way that suits you. I mean, Mark. Going back to the dungeon master thing and the differences between that and role play games, console role play games, is that dungeon master, it's all set up in advance by the authors of the game. So in that way, it's pretty much like a choose-your-own-adventure book. Well, there are there are similar. There are no real choice. There, there's no real flexibility once it's all set up, except the flexibility that's built in. And so, therefore, it does come down to that dungeon master giving people the agency to adapt or forcing that one position on them, which you don't get in a in an actual programmed game, pre-programmed game. I disagree. Okay, I disagree. I just want to, I guess, clarify something on the whole dungeon master thing. In that there are. Uh, lots of wonderfully made kind of pre-done adventures that you can, as a dungeon master, take people through, which are great, particularly if you're kind of, you know, you're wetting your toes. Yeah, wetting your toes. Um, that's not the phrase. Um, trying to kind of... Dipping your toes in. Dipping your toes in, thank you. Yeah, if you're dipping your toes in. Um, or just, you know, don't want to spend, you know, weeks and months generating stuff. But also, the system itself is designed so that you can make your own adventures. And you can make them as closed or as open as you'd like. I did an adventure with um, some friends a few months ago in uh, not D&D, but using the quest system, which is like a very simplified one. You'd love it, Mark. It's very like no maths. And it's uh, no, not so you don't like maths. I don't like maths. It's just there's no kind of meta faff. It just kind of it just works where, you know, there was an entire city made. There were, you know, they'd made from scratch an entire city. There were multiple characters. There are multiple ways that things could go. It was very, very open. But I've also done adventures which are much more kind of scripted. And it's you do this, then you do this, then you do this. So I just, I just wanted to clarify that there is a lot more kind of um, scope mm-hmm. uh, in there from a Dungeon Master's perspective. And actually just to say, yeah, that's kind of like the big thing, the Dungeon Master is not just to facilitate that experience, but it's often also to design it and decide the scope of it. Sorry, Elliot. I think that's exactly what Mark was saying. Was it? Oh, for which is that, <laughs> Which is that in a video game, the developer's have to build in any flexibility in advance generally i mean the changes could be made patches can be made but generally they can't alter the program experience because they've realized suddenly that one person playing it right now is experiencing things in a certain way so they have to anticipate everyone's needs in a way that doesn't allow so much easy adaptation if they forget something or miss something whereas with a dungeon master, they can design things in advance with an idea of how they think people will probably respond to things and what might help people thrive. But if they realize in the moment that that is actually not impacting things the way that they thought it would or having an unexpected effect, they have much more scope to pause and make an adaptation to tweak things, to make it work, to be more effective in a way that can't happen in real time usually with video games yeah i agree is that what you were saying mark i, I wasn't listening to me either i'm glad one of the three of us was listening to what i was saying <laughs> no i think it was what i was saying yeah but i think that it comes with an additional issue because in relation to learning and teaching that dungeon master is complicated because there are a lot of systemic issues but one example of the dungeon master is the lecturer for example and when there's an actual person that represents enforcing a certain way of doing things or choosing to enforce rather than adapt, that means that whether or not you have an environment that suits you, 
can feel like it's or actually be entirely up to whether or not that person thinks your needs are valid. And I think that's coming back to that idea of agency and believing people if they say, wow, this is this is not ideal for me. Is there any chance we could do it this way? Rather than feeling that you need to understand or that you know what's best for them. It's a very colonial paternalistic idea that no, 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 this is how people learn best. This is how everyone learns best. Well, it's not though, is it? So yeah, I think that's kind of how what UDL tries to do as well with teaching, which probably is a good way to maybe segue into that because, you know, from what I've worked with UDL, it's, it is intended to set things up right from the start to build in that flexibility right from the start and anticipate all the different things that, that kind of people would need. Could, could you explain UDL to us, Elliot? I guess as if, as if we're two people who are completely... Haven't done the preparation. <laughs> Mark, speak for yourself. Speak for yourself. Imagine Mark hasn't done any preparation and hasn't um, read up on UDL. How would you explain UDL, particularly to a bloke in the pub? So I think it's important, probably somewhere relatively near the beginning, for us to reinforce that UDL stands for Universal Design for Learning. And I think Mark did an excellent job of explaining it. It is better, I think, considered as... a uh, broad approach or mindsets or way of doing things or perhaps a framework rather than a very specific like method of teaching and it's based on the idea of trying to build in flexibility from the outset they talk about three main ways in which you can think about this so there's flexibility of representation which means using examples that don't just refer to one particular kind of group. For example, the fact that in medical case studies, it's usually a white cis man, for example. And that can have real implications for what we consider to be medical knowledge as well. Because if the examples in research are also that, then people think that, ah, well, this is how this condition works. Is happening when in fact it's this is how this condition works for this group and then the other two are in I always get these two mixed up because they sound very similar but one of them is about essentially presenting things in a way that allows multiple people to work with concepts and I suppose I'm hesitant to say it this way but sort of absorb material although that's not really like is that the engagement category well, I, get, I always get it mixed up. Yeah, I think engagement is like sort of the idea of presenting things in a range of different ways for what works best for people. And then the action and expression is allowing people to interact with things in yeah. certain ways. Well, interact with things in a range of ways. But the problem is that to me, I would also use the word engagement for that. Yeah. And so it's complicated. I think the thing that can be really difficult about UDL is that essentially it's like, Really, to me, UDL means embracing uncertainty and embracing the unknown and the fact that people are probably going to experience things in ways that you haven't predicted. And if that happens, it doesn't mean that you're a bad teacher or a bad person. It means that you didn't know. And hopefully now you do. And you can factor that in and try and figure out what to do. But some examples of using UDL in a learning and teaching situation might be things like providing different ways for people to contribute to conversations. So, for example, if we were doing it on an online video conferencing tool like Zoom, saying that people can contribute by using their microphone or by typing something in the chat 
or maybe giving a place where people can put their thoughts anonymously. It's really about removing barriers to people being able to thrive in a context. And to me, the hardest part about it is that we can't possibly know how everyone is going to experience something. But to me, the key is to be open to learning about how different people might experience things because often the way that we set up things doesn't even allow space for that conversation mm. to happen because there's only one way. And if you can't do it that way, there's this assumption that maybe you shouldn't really be here. As somebody who does learning design at the Open University, we're like an extreme case of UDL difficulty in some regards because if you're delivering kind of like live lectures, live teaching to you know an alive student body directly in front of you, as an educator, you do have kind of a bit of agency responsiveness. You can you can react to what's in front of you and you can change and adapt and open up your teaching because it's you know you've, you can have a little bit more confidence that you can adjust things on the fly for the people who are in front of you and you can maybe offer a little bit more choice because you can respond to it. Whereas with the Open University, the teaching we design is kind of, it's locked for two, you know, we, we design it and two years later it goes live to students. It's a very, very, hopefully, tightly curated journey. And the trap in that is that you tightly curate it to the point where even the student modes of engagement and the student interactions are locked down. And it's something that's been really, I think there's been a big discussion and something that people are really focusing on the last couple of years, I think, but is, is essentially UDL by the, another name. It's having that incredibly well curated and put together journey while at the same time giving multimodal means of engagement it's giving people lots of different ways not just to interact but also to do their assessments and things it's to make sure that everybody's feeling represented and yeah i guess i just want to throw that in because it's it's something that's really it's such a hot um design topic at the moment for us because we have to lock things in so carefully and curate things so tightly so early on we um yeah we have we have to plan we have to consciously plan where our, uh, our openness and, and responsiveness is. Really relevant, and I think definitely relates to the idea of video games versus tabletop mm. RPGs in that that feels like more of a video game-like situation yes. where you've, you've got to know in advance. And the problem is that you can't possibly, you absolutely can't. The audacity, not of you, do not worry, <laughs> of assuming that we know how everyone's going to experience things is incredible. And the thing that I think really gets me is that if we don't think about how someone might respond to something or react, then it feels like if there isn't room for it to be changed, that what we're really saying is, well, if this doesn't work for you, you're not welcome. You can't play the game or you can play, but on hard mode, you're going to have to play on hard mode. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, and the thing that I really think that I find really difficult is that idea, like, who gets to decide? I remember as a child being like, why don't we all have one currency? And somebody was like, well, who would get to pick which the dominant currency was? And I'd be like, my one. And they're like, yes, I think everyone might think that. <laughs> I think that to me is pervasive about all of this. And that's why the dungeon master analogy is so interesting, because when that person is existing, then they, in some cases, they get to decide, essentially, do I want to create a welcoming environment for this person or would I rather not? The flip side of this is that is that approach where people say, you can do whatever you like without mentioning a kind of norm in that the amount of times I've heard someone say, you know, well, I said they could pick their own essay question, but they don't like it. They just want to be told what to do. And 
I think what's really interesting here is that it's usually because the person, whoever's in charge or marking or whatever, does have an idea in their head of what would be okay and what wouldn't be okay, but they they don't realize that there's so many options that someone could do that wouldn't meet that idea. I like to think it's like the equivalent of there being a massive field and there being so many different ways to cross it and me saying, right, okay, so I can cross this field. How, how do I cross it? And people are like, oh, any path, like however you want, just, just you know, whatever works for you, that'll be fine. And then me crossing it and then be like, well, not there, obviously. And I'm like, what? And it's because they can't see the whole field mm. or they can see they can see one clear route and nothing else. And so quite a lot of times people come to me and say, well, people just don't want choice. Or I say that, that like people want to know what's okay and what isn't. And I tell them everything's okay. Is it though? Because if I like said abusive things to you, that wouldn't be okay, would it? There are definitely things that aren't okay. And I think that that's almost the hardest part is trying to be able to be explicit about what is needed without restricting people. Intended learning outcomes, I think, is really key. And it's what I talk about in my work as well. I designed something with more flexible assessment recently. And people kind of said, well, how how will you know what is the correct format? What would be an okay format? And at my point, it would need to be able to allow them to demonstrate those learning outcomes. And I think that comes to scaffolding. Scaffolding being the idea that if we've given people choice, unless we can help them figure out which choice might be right for them, are we really giving them choice or are we throwing them to the lion's den? So choice in assessment. So there's this big tension I've always felt between choice and assessment. And on the one hand, we're sort of, it's kind of, you know, the conventional wisdom is you re- you need to give people what they need in order to succeed. And then on, it's almost like a spectrum where on the opposite side you have agency and they're almost pulling in different directions. As in, sorry, as in giving people um, lots of different options and ways to do things, but on the other hand, kind of giving them a really kind of well-guided thing and rather than providing kind of like a, a roadmap, as it were, for every conceivable route. And it's like they're sort of pulling in two different directions. Yeah, it's actually equipping people with what they need to navigate that in order to navigate, make decisions, understand themselves enough to know what is actually going to work best for them. That's the key bit, and it's often the bit that's missing, I think. Um, it's definitely missing from the HESA framework, really, interestingly, which, um, yeah, I would like to see more of. It's uh, it's basically everybody wants to have a conclu- an inclusive curriculum with lots of ways of interacting and in, um, giving people kind of like maximum choice for success until they start working out the logistics of assessment. And it starts absolutely terrifying people. And that's suddenly where you find, you start thinking, well, actually, maybe we need to move away from this traditional view of assessment and start focusing back on the learning outcomes, which is where I think um, Elliot was uh, uh, was kind of, sort of just hopping off there. Because what you know, are, you, are you assessing a person's equivalent ability to do an essay or are you assessing what you actually originally set out to teach with the learning outcomes? There we go. That's my soapbox ramble. Yeah, I think that the idea that what we want to do is equip people to make decisions is 100% my approach to learning and teaching. And the reason I think it's so interesting is because I think there are so many behaviors that are considered correct and normal in academia that actively reinforce the opposites. So anytime we say to a student, you don't know what's best for yourself, we are telling them 
your own judgments and your own self-regulation are not to be trusted. And I'm not talking about that kind of constructivist approach where the idea is helping people think through things and kind of helping guide them towards different ways of thinking. I'm talking more about that idea that, for example, if somebody says, I'm really sorry, but like, if I did a presentation, I would have a panic attack. And like, I feel like I could communicate what's meant to be communicated in a presentation really well another way, but I'll just have a panic attack. Often the response is, students need to be able to do presentations. And, you know, when I was a student, I just needed to be pushed because a bit of discomfort is what it's all about. And it's kind of like, okay, but this student has evaluated their own resources and has decided that this would be harmful for them. And in saying that that doesn't matter, what we're saying is that they shouldn't be trusting their own judgment about what they need and what decisions they can make. It's often separate from logistics. There are sometimes logistical reasons that certain changes cannot be made, and that is that is how it can be. But it is entirely separate from suggesting that people don't have the ability to judge things for themselves. And I think it's particularly ironic considering the real focus in assessment literature about assessment literacies, self-regulation, the idea that students you know, we should help them to be able to understand how they're progressing and make decisions. But so often, we're not really clear about what it is that we're looking for. So how on earth are they meant to know? And for me, it all comes down to the idea of what is actually non-negotiable. What is the thing that I actually want people to be able to do? And then it's about facilitating an environment that enables that. Sorry, I I really like that as a kind of what is UDL? Like, oh, how are you apply? How are you considering how you're applying UDL? What is the non-negotiable elements? And then what's the the open space around that? I like that as a, a kind of a summary. Yeah. Yeah. I like to combine constructive alignments, which is the idea that your intended learning outcomes should be what you want students to learn. Teaching activities help them develop that. And then assessment helps them further develop and demonstrate that with backwards design, which is the idea that you're beginning with the end in mind. So for me, the end is that non-negotiable thing. And to me, the thing that's relevant in all of this is that actually the attitude of the people that create the environment or facilitate the environment can be the make or break factor in terms of inclusion. In the fact that if students don't feel like they matter, it's just not going to be an inclusive environment. Well, looking at the inclusive assessment, there was um, some areas where there was a pushback, particularly from students who didn't have any accommodations, didn't need any. And that was, to use your metaphor of um, crossing a field, there'd be accommodations made or uh, uh, alternative assessments made for some uh, allowed for some students. And then the, the students that weren't didn't want the, the alternatives were looking at the alternatives and going, you know, this person's been given a quad bike <laughs> to get across the field. And this was one of the concerns that lecturers had reported in the literature. I hadn't seen any actual evidence of the literature, but it was stuff that people had said had been written in the literature. So again, it's it's kind of hearsay, but it was that there's a pushback against some of the um, some of the alternatives because students felt that was a lack of equity in the fact that some people were given these extra options. So I'm wondering what our argument is against that as a pushback. I think the best place to start with it is with that metaphor of a level playing field in that 
I think people think that the way things currently are is a level playing field. And some people have something that means that it's harder for them to use that playing field or like to get to the playing field and reasonable adjustments can kind of fix that. But otherwise it's kind of fair. Um, and honestly, like if you can't succeed on that playing field, then maybe you just shouldn't be there. Whereas focusing on what the non-negotiable element is, so say it's speed, say that it's a race between all of the animals. We want to see what animal is the fastest, but we do it on land. Well, that means that fish can't even participate, but that's not because they aren't fast. It's because the environment isn't allowing them to demonstrate their fastness. And so I remember once somebody talking about my reasonable adjustments as a little bit extra, and I wrote a little poem about this in a freely available book on ableism in academia, edited by Nicole Brown and Jennifer Lee. But what I say in it is, it's not extra, it's what I need to cope in this environment that was not built for me. And I think the challenge about that is that for people to be compassionate about it, I think they need to be able to understand that some people are experiencing something that they cannot see. They need to acknowledge that the way they're doing things isn't the right way, it's the way that works for them. It's not the way that everyone should do X. I think the idea is, it's down to why can't you just do X? Why? But why should I? Like as a trans person, I've had, you know, I see people often say, well, couldn't you just have been a masculine woman? Like, okay, like, sure, but I don't, but I'm not. Saying it that way positions being a masculine woman as somehow a preferable choice to who I am as a person. And honestly, I, I find that really difficult. And similarly in this, why can't you just engage with this way? Well because that's not how I engage that works for me. And I, I don't know, I think when it comes down to fairness, it's maybe better to try and help people think, what is it that you need to be able to thrive? It's kind of not any of your business what other people need to thrive, unless that somehow directly impacts you. But I think because we're so much brought up that we don't get to attend to our needs, we don't get to decide what works for us we just have to somehow contort ourselves to fit in this world that might not have been built for us that we can be really judgmental of people that aren't able to contort themselves or don't want to harm themselves by contorting themselves and if you've never had to contort yourself to fit into that space then you're like what is everyone else's problem and that's where compassion even if you don't understand is the core principle damn that is the nub um, I'm just conscious of the time. I feel like we should probably move on to the second part, but is there anything else we want to say on UDL for now? I can provide information about an article that does a good review of other papers that explore UDL, if that's something that people would like to read more about. That'll be available in the show notes. Please email me that link. You're going to need to remind me. Come on now. Between us, it will never happen, but there we go. This will work. That's right. The three of us, three of us, one of us has got a good chance of remembering that it was going to happen. You know, I feel all the best like podcast partnerships are made of like one organized person and one not organized person. And we've somehow managed to cobble through on two unorganized people. <laughs> okay. So I'm just going to drag us into the second part of the show, but just to, I guess, resummarize what UDL is just to take us into that. So um, UDL, Universal Design for Learning, it's a framework for considering how your teaching uh, can enable people, as many people as possible to succeed by providing multiple means of representation, so making sure that it's not just your, your traditional contexts and uh, and types of people are represented in your teaching, but um, you know people for a, a broader spread, everybody. 
are represented, uh, providing multiple means of engagement. So multiple means for people to actually, I say consume, but um, assimilate your teaching, sort of multimodal uh, methods of, of communication. And finally, by providing multi means of action and expression. So into them actually to, to interact with, to um, engage actively with your teaching. Um, and all of that ultimately towards the achievement of a non-negotiable ultimate outcome, the actual goal of your teaching, the outcome of your teaching. Part two, the answer. Okay, so uh, listeners, quick behind the scenes, we've just taken a a quick break because we realised that we were actually asking the wrong question. So the original question for this episode when we started recording was how can applying UDL principles make you a better dungeon master? And um, since then, we've had a bit of a chat um, got onto the second part of the show and realised that the question that we're actually answering or should be answering is what can Dungeons and Dragons teach us about UDL? Which, as you'll guess, is a slightly different focus because um, Elliot pointed out this is actually us authentically uh, adapting as we go to um, uh, suiting our debris, our ultimate outcome, which was to teach you about UDL and why it's cool, make your teaching cooler because you're awesome. Did I get that right? Absolutely. Right. So part two of the show. Let's answer our question, what can Dungeons & Dragons teach us about UDL? So we've talked a lot so far about Dungeons & Dragons and the role specifically of the Dungeon Master, and we've talked about UDL and kind of more broadly, I guess, about ways that it can influence, positively influence your teaching practice. So who would like to attack this question? I would like to put a hypothetical scenario to you. This is a Dungeons & Dragons style scenario with I think some UDL links. So your dungeon master presents you with a locked door. Hello, post-production Mark here. At this point, Elliot, Mike and I tried to improv a locked door scenario and we didn't do very well at it. So Mike went away, got ChatGPT to write a little skit for us. And then Elliot was going to play the warrior in the skit. I was going to play the wizard and Mike was going to be the dungeon master. However, the three of us couldn't get together in time to do this recording. And as Elliot and I were both at a conference together, we recruited the conference organiser to chip in and perform the role of dungeon master. So that's what you're going to hear in the <laughs> in the next little bit coming up. All right, your party have successfully navigated through the treacherous labyrinths, vanquished fearsome creatures, and now stand before a mysterious locked door. Fear not, my friends. I shall summon the powers of magic to unlock this door. Hmm, that's weird. That's not working. That's it. You can't unlock a simple door. Magic isn't as easy as it looks, you know. Besides, I specialised in fireballs, not locksmithery. Well, it seems you're facing a bit of a conundrum. You see, the door can only be unlocked by a skilled rogue. You could have mentioned that before we started this adventure. What can I say? I thought one of you might have chosen a rogue class. Oh yes, because picking locks is such a popular career choice for adventurers. Is there no other way to unlock the door? Can we smash it down? Nope. Only a rogue can unlock it. It's the only option. Hmm. I have an idea. I shall cast a spell to summon a rogue. You can do that. Of course. Watch and learn. I'm sorry, but summoning a rogue isn't a thing, my friend. All right, enough is enough. I'm going to the tavern for a drink. Me too. 
Well, it seems our adventurers have hit a bit of a snag. Let's hope they find a locksmith before their next gaming session. Yeah, I think the point that you said in the sketch that what was really most important was, no, you need to be a rogue for this. And, like, I think the idea of making it the other people's problems, like, well, I don't know why you would try and do D&D without a rogue. Like, that's ridiculous. Like, there's a barrier. It's an arbitrary barrier. And you're saying that because of that barrier, we are somehow unwelcome, even though the barrier is only there because of you being an evil villain. So the skit was not a good example of UDL. What can good dungeon mastering and good Dungeons and Dragonsing teach us about UDL? I think the key thing is that the dungeon master or the lecturer has a huge amount of control over whether other people are going to be able to thrive. And as Spider-Man says, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> it was his uncle ben who said that but it doesn't matter <laughs> oh my god that's so embarrassing no no we can't get that wrong um, <laughs> so i'm ellie i'm so sorry there is there is so much being trimmed from this episode and yet that's staying in that's <laughs> okay so i just would like to say for the record that i have now been made aware that that was an incorrect statement but as a tribute to the concept that it is okay to be wrong and that we can learn from things we're going to be keeping that in and apparently that's the reason, not that Mike just finds it hilarious. I just, I've, got a, I've got a real blondie-minded streak to me. What can I say? Oh, no. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm a comic book nerd. It's, I, I love where Mark's like, actually, I think you'll find that Tony Stark had a palladium uh, thing in his reactor. Yeah, but Twitter is now going to be just like, oh, my goodness. That guy can't even get his Spider-Man references right. I'm going to lose all my, my followers. Sweet cred. <laughs> So, so going back to our skit... Going back to our question, yeah. What was that Dungeon Master doing wrong and how would they have incorporated more UDL principles into the way that they were, they were playing, being their mastering, their dungeoning? I think that the key, ironically, given that it was a lock, would be to consider what the most important ingredient or what the goal was for those adventurers... And then to allow flexibility about how it was achieved. So, for example, I think there's lots of situations where people think students need to be able to, and it's the equivalent of, pick this lock. Whereas what really is necessary is for them to be able to get past the door. So people often say, well, students need to be able to develop communication skills. But they interpret that very narrowly as students have to be able to do a very specific type of presentation or work in a very artificial group work setting and being so restrictive might actually be preventing them from doing your actual overall goal, which would be developing communication skills or getting past the door. So as a flame mage, I could just burn down that wood, for example, or could probably have smashed it. But what's key here is that actually it's the attitude of the dungeon master that was preventing us from being able to succeed, whilst the narrative from the dungeon master was that it was somehow our fault for not being the right kind of people or having made poor choices in who we are. Yeah, and I'd say that as well. In that, in this hypothetical scenario, which you know we're essentially we're putting um, dun the dungeon master kind of in, in the shoes of um, the educator and vice versa in this, it's not necessarily through malice either. It's more through, well, in the case of our Dungeon Master, they're working off of a heavily scripted adventure. And from what they can see, the way to go through this door is to pick the lock and they can see no other way around it. 
and there's a bit of open-mindedness and improvisation. It's it's kind of scary going off piste. I think a lot of people end up stricking, stricking, sticking to um well, a what they know, but also b the the hard definitive planned out line because it's easier, but also maybe they're not comfortable moving outside of those lines. We talked earlier about um, feedback and situations where people can can comfortably fail. In fact, I think we've possibly missed a whole uh, trick here actually in talking about some of the great stuff that Dungeons and Dragons does in creating scenarios and environments where people can comfortably fail. But I think that goes both ways. I think it's also, as an educator, you need to be in an environment where you can fuck up, where you can go, oh, Jesus, actually, you know what? (sighs) You know, the book says you can do this, but... I don't, you know, it, there's no other way for you to proceed. It seems daft that you shouldn't be able to, yeah, you can absolutely, like, you know, you can absolutely set fire to this, I was wrong. It's it's being able to sit there and stand stand there and say, yeah, I was wrong, I need to adapt my behaviour and to feel comfortable doing that. That's, that's why I think it's always worth considering to be a two-way street. I, I, yeah, I think you, you picked on something that's, that's key there, which is that this is part of the issue I see with people trying to incorporate you when you approach them with UDL. They're not, not even at the stage of them deciding to incorporate it. But the initial reaction isn't often, you know, like they're right and I'm wrong. Sometimes it's this would leave me vulnerable hmm. and this makes me feel uncomfortable because I'm now outside of what I know how to mark a 2,000-word essay. I don't know how to mark a 15-minute video. I don't know how to make these accommodations and still feel like I'm in control. Mm. And I think that's part of the learning process is to not feel like you have to be in control and get everything right. And uh, actually just trying is and not necessarily getting it absolutely right the first time is fine as long as you're trying. So I think that's the an essential part of looking at this process is that it's quite scary and I think we need to find people to feel, make people feel a bit less scared by you know not feeling exposed or being exposed and not being so worried about it. It's about maybe being a bit more playful and having a safer environment for our educators as well. Well, that's the thing, safer environment for the educators. It's I think there's so much set up at the moment which is metrics driven. It's I think there's a huge amount of pressure on educators now to align to this framework to get excellent I think there's I think there are a lot more structures in place designed to make people feel like they are failing which fundamentally run counter to this I think educate I think a lot of universities preach a broader more open approach to education than they in fact practice and create with their own educators with their own staff yeah, I think that aligns with the concept of a values gap, which I think is often the case between practice and stated values. I think the idea of a safe environment for educators is really key. And I think it's particularly difficult because we are in an environment in higher education where it feels like there's a million ways to fail and no clear way to actually succeed. The other thing that's really difficult is that it can feel so exhausting. I think the key is actually to start to think of our own needs and students' needs as valid and our own preferences as valid. That doesn't mean we get to always do the thing that we would like best. But I think a lot of harm comes from feeling the need to say that things just need to be done a certain way because that's correct, rather than talking about actually what we would prefer and what might work for us. And I at least feel that within society, I'm continually pushing against the idea 
that really my needs don't matter. And it's somehow shameful for me to be going about things in this way. And that really, I should just be aligning with this societal vision for how one should be. And so for me, I think maybe the most interesting thing is how we can emotionally support educators to be able to think about their own needs, their own goals, their own values, and to feel okay with creating a flexible environment that might help students thrive, even if they don't know or understand why students might need things a certain way. As always, I wish I had a sound effect for nodding, because just saying yes seems like it doesn't carry quite the same weight. Emphatic nod. Mark, you look like you want to say something. I mean, in the case of that, there's the sketch we had then, um, I guess most dungeon masters would, when we're seeing that group who's trying to get through the door is not comprised doesn't comprise a, a rogue, then they would be adaptive and they would like on the fly think of alternative ways. And I guess that's that's the answer to the question is yeah, be like a dungeon master, look at who your actual cohort are. Maybe they're not might have the right class to get through what you want to do, but look at what they are trying to do and see which one of those is, is achieving the outcome in an alternative way and adjust to that on the fly. It can be done. You might want to define the D&D slash RPG meaning of the word class. Otherwise, oh, that yes. might be coming across as more of a socioeconomic point than intended. I think the other thing to add to that, which is really important, is not to assume that just because it doesn't look like you've got a rogue that people don't have lockpicking abilities. So for example, it could be that I, I was excellent with a lockpick. And um, if I'd had a dungeon master that said, no, 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 none of you will be unpicking un the lock because I know that you can't do that, which I think can often happen to people who are disabled or autistic as I am. Oh no, well, we know that you're, you wouldn't be able to do that. So it's about creating an environment where people might do it the way that you expect, or it might be something different as Mark said. Oh, a classic example of that is, well, you know, if you've got dyslexia, you can do a video instead. It's like, no, that's not the right, right, right way to phrase it at all. Well, or to even think about it, because not that I'm trying to control how people think, although maybe evil villain time. Um, to me, it's still in that position. It's still someone else suggesting that they know what's best for you and that their judgment is somehow superior to yours in terms of your own needs and preferences. So, you know, knowing like I know that you're dyslexic and that might, means that you might experience X, Y, Z. There's a range of possibilities for, you know, how you go about this, if you like, would work. But essentially saying, I know what's best for you, so I'm going to make you do it this way is something I have experienced so many times and it hurts my soul. As, as a staff member, as a learner, as just a person, it's that concept where I am being made to do something that harms me because another person needs to believe that they are doing something positive for me. And it, to me, that's peak colonialism, really. And from a player's perspective, it's just boring. You know, it's, you get to the door, you roll a dice, you succeed or fail. You get to the door, you roll a dice, you succeed or fail. You fight an orc, you do an attack, you roll the dice, succeed or fail. You know, half, half, if not all of the fun in D&D is inhabiting the separate world and being able to impact it with your decisions and your actions. Being able to do and inhabit a different person, be a different person. I think um, from a player's perspective, as well as a, a student's perspective, the difference between uh, a boring experience and an experience which actually allows you to feel like you are you know, controlling your own destiny and you're having a good time and you have an exciting time is 
that freedom, that agency. I think Taskmaster, the TV show, is a really good example of that freedom to fulfill goals in different ways in that they have some non-negotiable things that need to be done. They have some things that they will specify for how people need to engage with the task, but actually going about things in an unusual way is encouraged. Also, Taskmaster is my favorite show on TV. I love it so much. Okay, so we've answered our question. I think actually we've kind of been doing a little bit of this as we've been going through, but let's summarize it and pull it all together in the third part of our show where we give you some tips for your own practice. Part three, practical tips. Do you want to each just pick maybe one or two top tips for practitioners they can pull out of what we've been talking about today? I think the most important thing for me is to work to embrace that space where you don't necessarily know and to try and make decisions that allow students to make judgments about what might work for them because your attitude as someone that's trying to do things in a way that will work for others is an incredibly important and supportive and helpful component and I would argue more important than any individual technique that you might try. It's a banger. And Mark? The thing I th- that I think struck home most is that there's still a self-centered colonialist attitude that you can unconsciously introduce to this, which is what do I have to get right in order to so I don't look like I'm a bad guy here or whatever, and that actually that's not the best approach to this it's about what can i what how can i give other people agency to do what's best for them rather than how do i make all the right decisions about what's best for them and i think that's that's a useful way of flipping it and maybe is trickier in the short term but but it also has a beneficial side in that it lets you off the hook a bit because it's relegating your role in all of the decision making and empowering other people to make some of those decisions and and that is maybe once you've got past that i'm in charge kind of concept maybe that makes your life a bit easier it's also hard in that it also involves acknowledging the harm that you can cause without meaning to even with good intentions I think that's really relevant because it might feel like somehow it's worse and scarier and like you're doing it wrong to embrace that uncertainty a little bit and to help students make decisions that work for them. But actually, it can be so much more supportive and positively impactful than the incredible harm that can be done by well-intentioned people telling others that they know what's best for them. I think mine um, is just a way of framing the whole thing, to be honest, which has come up during this thing, Elliot, you might have coined it originally, and it's um, it's made it a lot clearer for me. So in design, just being aware of what your non-negotiable outcomes are, what kind of your concrete immutable core is, the objective that you're ultimately trying to get to, and then being able to consider the UDL approach around that. So there's many different ways towards your outcome and it doesn't need to be a set path. Elliot, thank you so very much for joining us for this. Um, where can people uh, find you online? Do you have anything you want to plug? Yep, they can find me on Twitter at at Elliot Spaith. The spelling for that will be in the show notes or on my website, which is chroniclyelliot.com. Again, the spelling of my name is two L's and two T's and will be in the show notes. 
And if anyone would like to have a conversation about working together to make your learning and teaching more inclusive, then please get in touch. Nice one. Cool. Well, Elliot, thank you so very much for, for joining us. And I think we're going to have you on again some point in the near future for a Discworld episode with Liz Ellis. I spoke to Liz the other day and she was very excited about it. Yeah, I was speaking to Liz on the phone last night. So Aww. yes. Because she's a well-connected person is our Liz, isn't she? She's great. It's almost like we all met at the same conference. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then, in which case I'm going to wrap the show up. Thank you so very much for listening. You can subscribe to us on all of your favourite apps, feeds, iTunes, and at our website, pedagodzilla.com. You can also follow us and get in touch via Twitter. I'm at Pedagodzilla. I'm at Mark Childs. And I'm at Elliot Spaith. If you've enjoyed the episode, and we really hope you did, then why not set it as the non-negotiable ultimate outcome in the piece of teaching that you're doing? What is that outcome here, you ask? Why? It's just memorising our URL and then going out into the streets and just painting it over everything you can find, absolutely everything. Um, side of a bus, I hear it's really... Uh, basically, if you paint something on the side of a bus, I hear everybody, believe, everybody believes it. It doesn't matter what it is. Anyway, some people might see that, they might vote for it, and then next thing you know, the whole country is, by law, obliged to listen to our podcast. Anyway, we love you lots, and we'll see you next time on Pedagodzilla. Goodbye now. Bye. Bye.